came out with sets of numbers and I plotted them on pieces of paper. Radio waves, radio waves, she sees radio waves, radio waves. Astrophys brings the news, arrays and dishes give different views, are you confused? Radio waves, radio waves, radio waves, she sees radio waves, she sees radio waves. Welcome to the Astrophys Podcasts. My name is Brendan O'Brien and today is Friday the 31st of August 2018. Each fortnight we speak with a special guest in the fields of radio astronomy, optical astronomy, space science or particle physics. And today we are speaking with Dr Andrew Cameron who is a Pulsar radio astronomer from the CSIRO's Astronomy and Space Science Division who is intent on tracking down Black Hole Pulsar Binaries, and you'll love this fabulous quest. And that's followed by University Toxicology Lecturer, Amateur Astronomer and Astrophotographer, Dr Ian Musgrave of Astroblogger fame, who will tell us what's up, Doc, what's up in the evening, night and morning skies for the next two weeks. He takes us on an astronomical tangent, and we finish up with some Astrophys News Highlights, featuring the latest discoveries in this golden age of astronomy and space science. So let's cross to Sydney, Australia now to speak with Andrew. Hello, Andrew. Hello. Today we are speaking with a Pulsar radio astronomer and brand new doctor, Dr. Andrew Cameron who was awarded his doctorate from the Max Planck Institute for Radio Astronomy and Astrophysics at the University of Bonn just a couple of months ago. Andrew has just returned from China, where he's working with the world's largest instrument, the FAST radio telescope. It's a massive 500-metre spherical telescope and currently holds a record for the largest single-dish radio telescope in the world. He also uses the Parkes Radio Telescope for his Pulsar research and has developed an exciting new Pulsar search technique as part of his PhD research. But we'll hear all about that later. He had his first paper published in Monthly Notices in 2011 while still an undergraduate at UNSW, the University of New South Wales, and has garnered scholarships and awards throughout his academic career at a number of universities. He speaks German and English, and fortunately, he's agreed to speak with us in English today. So, Andrew, can you tell us about growing up in Australia? And please, tell us how you became interested in science and space in the first place, and did you have dark skies where you lived? Well, thank you very much for that wonderful introduction. So as far as my origins go, I am from Sydney primarily, although I did spend a few years of my youth living in Perth. 
in neither of those locations did I have access to particular dark skies at all. Yep. All the light pollution kept my view of the sky fairly obstructed, I'm afraid. But as far as where my interest in science goes, I was trying to think about that over the last couple of days. And as far as I can tell, I've basically been interested in science as long as I can remember, all the way back to primary school. I can probably put a few influences down. I was interested in Doctor Who as a kid. <laughs> Not really Star Trek. I didn't pick up Star Trek till I was in my PhD. I always had an interest in science and science fiction, and my parents certainly saw that and tried to encourage me as best they could. Science was one of my favorite subjects at school, and I basically chased science and science-related things all the way through school up into high school. Okay, thank you. Tell us a little bit about your early ambitions, and did those ambitions change? Well, I always had the ambition going through primary and high school that I would become some kind of scientist or potentially an engineer. I just could never quite figure out what it was exactly that I wanted to specify in, what I wanted to specialise and eventually become. Various things excited me when I was younger. I liked the idea of studying natural disasters. I liked the idea of studying things about space. I never actually had the ambition or believed that I could become an astronomer or astrophysicist. I loved the idea of it, and I was always very interested in space. When I was younger, my parents took me around to all the telescopes in New South Wales, to parks, to Narrabri, and I saw these things, and they were very impressive, and I loved getting a chance to see them. But actually becoming the person who got to use those things for their career never really struck me as a thing that I could actually achieve. I'm not really sure why that is. But other than working in science in general and changing between one thing to the next over the course of my high school life, yeah, that's basically as far as my ambitions went. Okay, fantastic. So tell us a bit about those early university studies and your first advanced science degree from the University of New South Wales. Well, the reason I went to the University of New South Wales in the first place, there are a couple of reasons for that. One is that during high school, I think about year nine, I did a science outreach program with the University of New South Wales. I think it was called the Seaman Science Experience. And it was a three-day thing. We did all sorts of different scientific activities throughout the university. And it's what it really made the university stand out to me when I was looking for a university at the end of my high school career. And when I graduated with very good marks, they offered me a scholarship. And so it was very much the obvious choice, as well as the fact that they had a really fantastic science program. So I enrolled in an advanced science degree, knowing that I wanted to chase science in some shape, but I didn't quite know where I was going with it yet. And the advanced science program, I think, is rather much like the science program, except the two main things. One is that you have to maintain a certain academic average mark. I think it was either a credit or a distinction average to stay in the program. Yep. The other one was that you have, were assumed to be doing honours at the end of the degree. And so you do your standard three-year degree plus the honours year. That comes as part of the advanced science program. And I majored in physics with computer science rather than doing an outright astronomy major. Because again, although I had a fascination with space and science and science fiction, I still didn't quite know if astronomy was the thing that I wanted to do as a career. And so I decided by doing physics and computer science, I could keep my options a little bit more open in case I changed my mind about certain things. Okay, great. So then you went from Sydney down to Melbourne then way up to Brisbane with the Bureau of Meteorology for a couple of years as a professional meteorologist. Can you tell us about your move from meteorology to astrophysics? 
Well, before we get to that, I think it maybe makes more sense to talk about my move from astrophysics to meteorology, because during my university career, I found myself heading more and more and more in the astronomy direction. I found myself getting more and more involved and interested in the subject. Yep. In my second year, I took an astronomy course, basics of astronomy, something along those lines as part of my second year of physics studies. And while I was taking the course, I was learning all the material about Hertzsprung-Russell diagrams and how stars form and develop in uh, the life cycle of various things in space. And I wondered, well, this is all fantastic and I'm really loving the course material, but what is it like to be an actual astronomer? Yep. So I asked my lecturer, Professor Michael Ashley, about that. And he said, well, we've got one of our other professors, Professor Maria Cunningham, who is going out to the Narrabri Compact Ray in a couple of weeks. Would you like to go with her and find out? And so in September of 2008, that's exactly what I did. I took a trip with her out to the Compact Ray and got my first chance at observing with an actual radio telescope. And that then led on to doing a couple of vacation summer programs, so research scholarships. The first one of those that I did was over the summer of 2008 to 2009 with the Australian National University in Canberra. And I worked at Mount Stromlo over the summer studying elemental abundances in globular clusters. The distribution of radioactive isotopes in that particular in that particular globular cluster. The summer after that, 2009-2010, I did a second summer research program, this time with the CSIRO, which is where I'm currently working now. Back then it was called the Australian Telescope National Facility. These days it's now referred to as CSIRO Astronomy and Space Science, and the ATNF is now just one part of that. Yep. That was my first ever exposure to pulsars, as a matter of fact. I did a research program with Dr. George Hobbs yep. on finding pulsars in radio continuum surveys. And that then led on to my honours program, which again was all, was all astronomy based. I did one honours project in the first half of the year on star formation in giant molecular clouds. And in the second half of the year was pulsars again again, working on pulsar detection and continuum surveys. So you'd think that at the end of my university degree, I would be well on track to go into a career or do a PhD in astronomy. And that was almost the plan. Yes. I applied, having seen a poster on the wall at UNSW for a PhD with the Max Planck Institute for Radio Astronomy in Bonn, Germany. And I put in all the paperwork and I went through the applications. But at the same time, I also put down for the Bureau of Meteorology and their graduate meteorologist training program because by the point that I was at the end of university, I knew that I wanted to do one of two things. I either wanted to become an astrophysicist or I wanted to become a meteorologist yep. because I'd say I'd taken some meteorology courses as well and that had been one of my other main scientific interests back during my high school life. And as it happened, the Bureau got back to me first and the money looked good and the job looked stable and so I decided to take it. And so in early 2011, after I graduated, I packed up, moved down to Melbourne. And the deal with the Bureau of Meteorology is that if you apply to become a weather forecaster straight out of university, you go into their graduate meteorologist training program, which is based down in Melbourne. Yep. All the applicants and all the people who make it into the program all move to Melbourne and you get trained up for a one-year program. And at the end of that, you get a graduate diploma in meteorology and you are a qualified weather forecaster. And it's basically like another year of university. You are in classes all day. You take exams. There's a lot more practical work, though. Basically, by the end of the program, you are simulating how to run an actual weather forecasting center. You do day shifts and night shifts and write all the forecast products yourselves. They don't get distributed anywhere. You're just doing it for practice. But by the end of that, you're a qualified forecaster and you get sent to one of the main capital cities to do forecasting in what are called the regional forecast centers. And 
you do get some choice in that, but if they need to put people in a certain place and there aren't enough volunteers, then they can send you there instead. And so I did choose to go to Sydney, but instead I ended up getting sent to Brisbane for doing weather forecasting there. And it was a great experience. I don't regret it for a second. It was a very valuable experience working in a professional environment. It's a wonderful place to work, great people to work with, and you get to do a lot of different things, severe weather forecasting, aviation forecasting. There's lots of different kinds of weather forecasting that the average member of the public probably doesn't realize goes on behind the scenes. But after a couple of years of that, while it was a good job and I'd recommend it to anyone who was interested in pursuing that career, I started to lose fulfillment in the job. I didn't find it as challenging as I was hoping for it to be. It became a little monotonous. And also the night shift work is very hard to deal with on a regular basis because many people don't realize this, but weather forecasters work a lot of night shifts because although you know, humans wake up in the morning and go to bed at night, the weather doesn't stop for anybody. So we have to be forecasting weather day and night for all the different services that need that. And there was also the lingering question of the PhD. You know, I'd done all this astrophysics work at university and had been building up and building up towards this fantastic idea of going and doing a PhD overseas and getting some life experience under my belt and chasing down this great big thing that I could achieve. And I'd let that slip me by entirely. And I came to the realization that I don't think I could have lived with myself if I hadn't gone back and done that and made that part of my life and achieved that big, fantastic thing. And so um, after about two years of working with the Bureau in Brisbane, I decided to reapply to the PhD program at Max Planck. I quit my job after I got the application successfully and made it into the program. And in the middle of 2014, I moved to Germany. And as with moving to the Bureau, I haven't regretted that decision since. One thing I'll mention before we move on, to anyone who's listening who's considering doing something like that, who's considering leaving academia at the end of university and doing a couple of years professionally and then coming back, it can be a very valuable experience. But one thing I was warned about, and it's very true, is that you are very unlikely to come back even if you plan to. Getting the momentum and the energy to actually leave my job and chase the PhD again took a lot more mental resolve than I thought it would when I first left university. So when they say that when you leave, that it's hard to come back, it's a very true statement. Okay. And a career doesn't have to be a straight trajectory. Certainly it does not. My career has gone in all sorts of different directions, <laughs> but I can at least say that it's always been looking up. <laughs> Excellent. Well, now you're actually not looking at clouds. You're looking straight through them with radio telescopes. Look, we're going to go back and talk about your thesis a bit later, but yep. let's fast forward for a while and talk about your recent visit to the FAST facility, this brand new monstrous machine in China. Has it been fully commissioned? Look, perhaps you should describe the instrument itself first, please. The FAST instrument, or FAST first of all, stands for the 500-metre aperture spherical telescope. It is literally a 500-metre-wide spherically shaped bowl carved out in the mountains of southwestern China. It is the largest single-dish telescope on the planet. The way that it works, roughly, because the telescope is fixed in position in the ground, it can't tip over like a smaller telescope like Parkes can to point at different parts of the sky. Yep. So the way that it looks around the sky at different parts of the sky is the surface of the dish is not rigid. It's made up of a series of different interlocking panels, many, many hundreds of them. And at the corners of those panels where they join together, 
They're connected by cables which attach to the ground underneath the dish. And we have actuators on those cables which can adjust the length of them. And you can use those cables to tension the surface of the dish to reshape it and adjust where the telescope's focus is on the sky. So by adjusting the shape of the dish on the ground, you can make the telescope point at different points on the sky and move the focus around so that it can see different things. Now, of course, by moving the focus, you have to move the receiver as well. And the receiver of FAST is a room-sized box which basically floats over the telescope on a series of, I think it's six cables, which are attached to large towers around the rim of the telescope. And by adjusting the lengths of these cables, you can move the receiver cabin to any point where it's needed in order to focus the telescope onto a position on the sky. As far as commissioning goes, the telescope is almost completely operational. It's been working in a rough state since uh, late 2016, and various systems have been coming online as the testing has been ongoing. Right now, the major component that's being worked on is the new receiver that's been installed as of May of this year. The telescope was previously observing with what's called an ultra-wide bandwidth receiver, yep. which was observing at lower frequencies between about 300 megahertz up to about 1.6 gigahertz, although it was only really working properly in the lower half of that band, so below about a gigahertz in frequency. And that's what the early science was being conducted with while the telescope was being tested in all its various modes. And so now the telescope can track sources, it can point around and point at different parts of the sky. Now they've changed out that receiver, and it's now observing with a new receiver that was built by the CSIRO. It's a 19-beam receiver observing at about 1.4 gigahertz in frequency with a bandwidth of about 400 megahertz. So between about 1.1 and 1.5 gigahertz. Yep. Re receiver literally has 19 different receiving feed horns, which means that you have 19 different, essentially, pixels on the sky that you can observe with at any one given time. Uh, Parks has had one of these things for a very long time, since the late 90s, but the one on Parks was only a 13 multi-beam receiver. The one on Fast, I think, represents the most advanced multi-beam receiver design currently in existence. That is an astonishing engineering feat in itself, Andrew. Now, we know you're a Pulsar researcher, but before we get on to that, can you tell us about the range of projects and lines of research that FAST will be involved with over the next decade, say? In terms of the research that FAST will be involved with, Pulsars, although we're going to get to that in a minute, Pulsars, at least in the early stages, are going to form one of the backbones of the research which FAST is expected to conduct. The first major survey that the telescope is going to engage in is known as the Commensal Radio Astronomy FAST Survey, also known as CRAFTS for short. And that survey will be a drift scan survey, so the telescope just points straight up and lets the sky rotate overhead while it records data. And by adjusting the position of the telescope very slightly, you can then make tracks of the sky over a 24-hour rotation and in that way map out large portions of the sky over a period of several months to a period of several years. And that survey is intended to be observing for both new pulsar discoveries and also to do the mapping of hydrogen, H1 mapping, inside our galaxy. Now, getting these two survey techniques to work together, is, which has been tried before on other telescopes and has proved to be very tricky to get right, but FAST is hoping to pull that particular survey off so they can get basically twice the bang for their buck, so to speak, yep. by doing two, two things at once. Later on down the line, pulsars will still form a major part of the work that FAST does, but it will also be involved in further hydrogen uh, mapping studies, 
mapping of some spectral lines of various molecules we can find in the galaxy and outside the galaxy. It will be a useful instrument as far as SETI work goes. That sort of work is already being prepped for with the instrumentation that's being built for the telescope. Uh, FRBs are also expected to be an interesting subject of research for FAST, although the fact that its observing beams are quite a bit smaller than other smaller telescopes that have been seeing FRBs, it might make them a bit trickier to spot. Okay. Now, let's go to pulsars. Our audience is most likely well aware that pulsars are rapidly spinning neutron stars that emit powerful beams of radio waves. Could you tell us about your particular pulsar research, please? And we'll talk later about your relativistic binary pulsar, but just your general pulsar research that you're doing, Andrew. Okay, well, my pulsar research in most recent years began when I did my PhD thesis, and the primary project that I was involved in during my thesis was studying a pulsar survey that was taken of the Southern Galactic Plane. It's what's called the High Time Resolution Universe, or HTIU for short, Southern Low Latitude Pulsar Survey. So the entire HTIU survey covers the entire sky and was designed to search for pulsars over the entire sky region. The southern half of the survey was taken with the Parkes Telescope, while the north was taken with the Eccelsberg Telescope in Germany. And so I was working on one small part of that survey, which focused on the southern portion of the galactic plane, including the galactic center. And it was taken with observations that are about 72 minutes long, which represent very, very long observations for pulsars, the longest that have been taken of any one blind sky region before. It's one of the most <laughs> sensitive telescope surveys for pulsars ever conducted. My research with that survey was to process it through a pulsar processing pipeline on a series of different supercomputers to try and discover new pulsars that were hidden in that survey that hadn't been found before. And I was the second student to work on that survey. The first student who worked on that and designed the pipeline, Dr. Cherry Ng, came up with 60 pulsars from that survey. I managed to discover another 40, and those were in my thesis. Many of them are very, very scientifically interesting in um, their own unique ways, including the relativistic binary that we're going to talk about hopefully in a minute. So those were in my thesis, and they should be getting published in the monthly notices sometime in the next few months if I can get that paper out on time. <laughs> Another bit of research that I did as part of my thesis was to work on new ways in which pulsars can be discovered that haven't been well studied before. So there's a technique that I was looking at called the fast folding algorithm, also known as the FFA. Now, this technique was first pioneered back in 1969 by a man called Stalin. And the way the FFA works, it takes an observation from a telescope. And in order to find a signal from a pulsar in that data, what you can do is if you assume that the pulsar's period is, for example, one second, you take your data set and you chop it up into pieces that are one second long. You can then add all those pieces together and see if the signal of a pulsar emerges in what's called the folded profile, and you can see if it looks like a pulsar or not. And if you don't find one, you can try again at a different period, and so on and so on. But that method can often be really, really slow, and it results in a large number of redundant computational steps. What the fast-folding algorithm does is it allows you to search over a large range of periods by doing a lot less computational steps. It allows you to do the folding process very, very efficiently. Now, this technique was developed back in the uh, late 1960s when pulsars were first found, but even with its computational savings, with its efficiencies, it was still a lot harder to implement computationally than the alternative searching technique, which is the fast Fourier transform, which is the way in which most pulsars have been discovered through the last 50 years of pulsar research. It's only now that we're seeing 
large-scale supercomputers and parallel GPU processing clusters that we can start to look at optimizing and efficiently implementing techniques like the fast-folding algorithm. And so because the technique hasn't really been used much up until now and hasn't been really been studied very well, I did a paper in, as part of my PhD research where I looked at going in-depth and studying the ways in which the FFA works and how it can best be applied to future Pulsar searches. And now after that paper's been written, uh, a number of other teams are also picking up the FFA research and we're starting to see a handful of new Pulsars being discovered in current Pulsar surveys that are being discovered through fast-folding algorithm search pipelines, which is rather pleasing to see. Fantastic to see your work taking up. Now, you mentioned teams, Andrew. We know that a lot of research these days is done in large collaborative teams. Can you tell about some of the current teams you're working with and how it's all going? So the major research collaboration that I'm part of right now is part of my postdoctoral research position with the CSIRO. We're part of a research collaboration with the National Astronomical Observatories of China, which is part of the Chinese Academy of Sciences. And they're the team that are currently responsible for developing the FAST telescope. So FAST is currently discovering new pulsars or has been discovering pulsars with its ultra-wideband receiver. And they found about 60 candidates to date. But while they're still in their stages of commissioning and testing, they haven't got that much ability to go and actually check out these pulsars and start studying them and even confirming that they're actually real sources on the sky. And so we have this collaboration with the Chinese team to follow up their pulsar discoveries with the FAST radio telescope. And it's mainly my job as part of my postdoc to lead the effort in following up the pulsars that FAST has found that PATHS is able to see, because we can't see all of them. We can only see the ones that are in the southern portion of the sky. The yep. northern ones are being followed up by other telescopes like the Eppelsberg Telescope in Germany and the Green Bank Telescope in the United States. Other collaborations that I'm in right now include, as I mentioned, the uh, High Time Resolution Universe collaboration, which I'm still doing work for as part of the paper that I'm currently working on that's still a part of what's left of my thesis. And I'm also a part of another collaboration called the Parks Pulsar Timing Array, or the PPTA. Yep. With a pulsar timing array, what we're trying to do is use a network of pulsars scattered throughout our galaxy to detect different kinds of gravitational waves. We're trying to detect the gravitational waves from, for example, supermassive black hole binary systems that exist in neighboring galaxies. And as those gravity waves from those supermassive black hole binaries pass through our galaxy, they create what we call a correlated timing signature between all the different pulsars that we're observing. And as we see that signature enter the residuals of each pulsar, we can then say, one, that there's been a gravity wave passed through the galaxy, and two, whereabouts, roughly speaking, that gravity wave has come from. Now, that project's been going for about the last 11 to 12 years, and the Parks Pulsar Timing Array is just one of a network of projects that are involved in this work. They're all grouped together under what's called the International Pulsar Timing Array. And as part of that system, also known as the IPTA, we hope to find gravitational waves using the technique of pulsars sometime in the next 10 years or so. Fantastic. Well, we saw with LIGO there were about 2,500 researchers involved in that, and it sounds like you've got a great network working on that Pulsar Gravitational Wave project. Now, let's go back to your thesis. You've got so much mileage out of it, and there's still more to come. Some of the pulsars you have found have been astonishing. The obvious one to talk about 
would be J1757-1854, a groundbreaking relativistic binary pulsar, and the flagship discovery, the HTRUS LOLAT Pulsar Survey. Can you tell us about what a relativistic binary pulsar is and how you found it and the instruments and the techniques you used in that survey? Right, well, a relativistic binary pulsar is essentially just a binary pulsar in which the effects of relativity are particularly easily measurable. And usually those are systems where you have a binary that's very close together in an orbit that's reasonably short with fairly massive objects in the binary. So, for example, the most common ones that we find are double neutron stars. So that's a pulsar orbiting another neutron star. And in one case, we've actually found one of these systems where it was a pulsar orbiting another pulsar. But that's the only one we know of in the 2,600 or more pulsars we've currently discovered. So they're reasonably rare, these relativistic binary systems. Uh, the one that I found uh, is pulsar J1757-1854. And yes, it was found as part of the HGRU South Low Latitude Survey. So the pipeline that we used as part of my PhD and as part of Dr. Cherry Ng's PhD was designed especially to find these binary systems in these relativistic orbits because the galactic plane region, the thickest part of the galactic disk, has been predicted to have a reasonably high chance of containing these extreme relativistic binary systems. And you can use these relativistic binary systems to conduct some very significant tests of different theories of gravity. For example, the current paradigm theory being Einstein's general relativity, which has so far passed every test we've thrown at it, even with pulsars, for the last 100 years or more. Yep. And so by finding more extreme binaries with even more extreme relativistic effects, we can push tests of general relativity and other gravity theories to even further and further limits and conduct tests that we haven't actually been able to conduct before with other less extreme binary systems. So the way the pipeline works is that when you have a pulsar in a binary system, pulsars spin with a more or less constant rotational period over short time spans. They do slow down their rotation over time, but during a single observation, that's not usually that significant. Yep. But if the pulsar is in a binary system, then the apparent period of the pulsar will appear to change as the pulsar moves around in its binary orbit. Basically the same, it's a Doppler effect, essentially. So in the same way that an ambulance siren changes pitch as it drives towards you and then drives away from you, pitch of the pulsar changes as it comes towards you and goes away from you. But instead of an ambulance driving down the road, for example, you can imagine an ambulance on a roundabout. And what we're trying to do with the pulsar is by measuring the sound of the ambulance's siren and how the pitch changes over time, you can measure the size of the roundabout and how fast the ambulance is driving around it. So by measuring the changing period of the pulsar, we can measure how big the orbit is, how long the orbit is, how oval-shaped the orbit is, measure all sorts of fantastic parameters about it. But that's not how we found the pulsar. The pulsar was found in a blind survey, and the trick is with a blind survey, you don't know what kind of orbit the pulsar is in. And trying to search through all the different kinds of orbits there could possibly be is really computationally hard to do. So our technique, based upon earlier research by other scientists, approximated the orbital motion of the pulsar in a given observation by assuming you could model its, its motion by a constant value of acceleration. And that allows you to stretch and squeeze your observation in time to make the pulsar look like it's stationary, essentially by removing the effect of the orbital motion. And by removing that orbital motion, you can make the pulsar's period look to be constant, which makes it much easier to find. Now, that technique only works well 
when the ratio of the pulsar's orbital period to the length of your observation is at a certain value. And the shorter your orbit goes, the shorter the observation you can search over and still make this technique work becomes. And so our technique took the long observation of the survey, which is over an hour in length, and progressively carved it up into smaller and smaller pieces and searched each smaller piece on its own to allow us to find these orbits that are much, much shorter in orbital period. So halfway through my PhD, after running this uh, particular processing pipeline on dozens and dozens of terabytes of pulsar survey data, late one night in January 2016, along comes this one pulsar candidate found in a half segment of the full-length observation, and it showed a fairly significant value of acceleration, meaning that it was in a reasonably small, tight orbit. And I was very excited about this because this was the first real candidate of this nature the pulsar survey had produced so far. You know, one out of 100 pulsars was the thing we were trying to find. And over the course of the next four or five months, we took the Parkes telescope and looked at this thing and tried to measure it as it was going through its orbit over many, 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 many months. And because the orbit of this pulsar was so very, very extreme, the pulsar's orbit is one of the most extreme we know about. It proved to be very hard to work out what the pulsar was actually doing. But when we did finally figure it out, it proved to be one of the most exciting pulsar discoveries made in the last few years. So I've, hit, I've danced around the issue for a while, so let's talk about what the pulsar actually is. Pulsar itself spins around roughly once every 21.5 milliseconds. It's in an orbit that's about 4.4 hours long around the neutron star companion. And it's also what we call eccentric, or the orbit is very oval-shaped. So if zero is a perfectly circular orbit, and value of one is an orbit that is essentially not an orbit anymore, it's so oval-shaped that it's broken the orbit, yep. this pulsar has an eccentricity of about 0.61. So it's very oval-shaped compared to other, very eccentric rather, compared to other relativistic binary pulsars. And this pulsar's orbit is one of the most extreme we've ever seen a double neutron star binary exist in. It holds a number of records, in fact. Its closest approach to its neutron star companion the two neutron stars get to within about 0.75 of the solar radius. So if they were in the proximity of our solar system, they could in fact fit inside the sun at that point. They're so close together. Uh, at their closest approach, they pass at a relative velocity of about 1,000 kilometers per second, and the pulsar reaches a maximum acceleration during its orbit of about 700 on the order of meters per second squared. And so the orbit, as you can imagine, is very, very extreme. So what makes this pulsar particularly interesting, one, it has the potential to push our gravity tests a little further, at least in terms of the ones that we've already got so far. But because this pulsar has these extreme properties, we hope to be able to do things with this pulsar in terms of gravity tests, which haven't been well explored before in the past. Fantastic. Is your pulsar and its neutron star companion, are they going to collide eventually? Eventually, yes, but unfortunately, none of us are going to be around to see it based upon the current rate of decay, which so far matches up to general relativity quite nicely. The pulsar so far shows general relativity to be correct within the tests we've been able to derive so far. So far, we predict that the pulsar and its neutron star companion will collide in about 76 million years' time. So, oh. um, yes, none of us will be here to see the fireworks, unfortunately. Oh, I'm going to hang around for that. So thanks, Andrew. Now, the microphone is all yours, and you have the opportunity to give us your favourite rant or rave about the challenges that we face in science, in education or equity or outreach, our quest for knowledge for space. The microphone's all yours. 
First of all, I should probably preface this by saying that I'm speaking on my own behalf here and not on behalf of the CSIRO at this point. One thing which is of particular interest to me is the degree to which in our current society, both here and overseas, we seem to be facing a growing movement of what I would describe as anti-intellectualism or an anti-science sentiment, which seems which seems to be taking root in some parts of the general populace. I mean, for example, we see in the modern era an apparent rise in climate change denialism. Yep. Uh, we see a continued persistence of anti-evolutionism yep. uh, on the biology side of things. I mean, for goodness sake, although I don't know the actual hard statistics on whether the numbers are actually growing, we now see in popular culture an apparent rise of the Flat Earth Society, <laughs> which I find in 2018 a bit staggering to believe. Not to mention the anti-vaxxers. That as well. That's another issue that we're dealing with in, in this current society. Yep. And it does trouble me to consider that these things, again, I haven't looked up the hard numbers or whether they are actually growing in strength, but certainly they're growing in their presence in the public sphere. And it's part of the reason why I'm, uh, I try to keep myself involved in public outreach efforts. I believe that public outreach and bringing science education to the public at large is a very important pursuit of any scientist in any field. While I was at university at UNSW, I was part of the astronomy outreach program doing planetarium shows. While I was at Max Planck, I took a few high school students on to do projects with for a couple of weeks. And now that I'm working with CSIRO, I'm part of the Pulse at Parks program, which is a program which gets high school students in to observe with the Parks Radio Telescope and get the chance to study and look at pulsars. And I believe that by these programs, we stand at least some decent chance of combating the apparent growing tide of anti-science sentiment that seems to exist in the populace. But at the same time, I do wonder if these outreach efforts that we're engaged in, whether they are in fact enough, whether there's something that we aren't doing that we should be doing, or whether in fact there's something that we are doing that we shouldn't be doing. It's really hard to say. So I'm not sure what the answer is on the whole, but it is an issue that does have my concern. And the important thing is we've got people like you going out there and telling the stories. So right now, we warmly invite our listeners to follow Dr. Andrew Cameron's career. And is there anything we should watch out for in the near future, Andrew? Any conferences? Uh, you've got some papers coming up. Any announcements we can expect soon? Well, I'd certainly keep an eye on any of the new science results that are going to come out from the FAST project in the next few months and years. The major telescope server that I mentioned, Kraft, is due to commence later this year, possibly early next year. And once that gets underway, there'll be hopefully some very exciting science to come out of that. In fact, we're looking at the publication of some of the early science results from that telescope sometime towards the end of this year already, and there's quite a few exciting things that we can expect to see from the work that's gone on with FAST so far. If you're following me specifically, uh, you can look forward to seeing my new survey paper, hopefully coming out towards the end of this year, which will document the other 39 pulsars that I found as part of my PhD. The relativistic binary has already been published, if anybody wants to go chase that down. Indeed. Okay. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Andrew Cameron, Pulsar researcher, working with the largest and most powerful research instruments on the planet. Good luck with your research, your career, and thank you so much for your time, Andrew. You're very welcome. I look forward to seeing you again sometime soon. Let's cross to Adelaide now for What's Up, Doc, and speak with Dr. Ian Musgrave. 
Hello, Ian. Hello, Brendan. Great to be speaking with you again, Ian. And here we are. There's some auroras on the horizon for a lot of people tonight. And we're just about to kick over 20,000 downloads of our podcast. So congratulations. That's fantastic. It's really good to hear. As we speak, it's not just some people are picking up aurora. There's a G3 geomagnetic storm happening, which under normal circumstances would have everybody leaping up and down with joy. But of course, tonight's a full moon almost, and there's light cloud everywhere. So the aurora are are not quite as spectacular as people would have liked, but people are uh, seeing aurora in uh, New Zealand and in um, Tasmania and photographing them. So uh, although theoretically us up here in uh, uh, the more northerly parts of Australia should uh, theoretically be able to see the aurora given the enormous storm that's going and still going on it's it's uh, it hasn't let up we should be theoretically able to see them but the conditions are, are pretty bad so we're likely going to miss out on this one. Oh well look the good news is that if we can get storms of this magnitude in a solar minimum then there's lots of opportunities for people to see aurora over the next few months to the next couple of years. That's quite true. Even in solar minimum, the sun's never completely stops being active. And so you get to see uh, all sorts of fantastic things. This storm basically was unanticipated. The Space Weather Service said that there was the, the chance that the wind from a solar hole might just brush by us and maybe, maybe there might be some activity but don't expect much, and then you sort of go, gee, free storm, and (laughs) that's the furthest thing from maybe there might be some activity that you can imagine. So um, we are consistently surprised with uh, with the sorts of things that we see. Fantastic, Ian, and we always encourage people to step outside. I enjoyed seeing the International Space Station go over last night and seeing those three bright planets up in the sky. So can you tell us, Ian, what's up, Doc? What's up in the sky for the next two weeks? What's up in the sky for the next two weeks? Well, mostly Venus, Jupiter and Mars will be very prominent. Again, if you go out and uh, look to the west and begin to raise your head above the horizon, the most amazingly brilliant thing you will see is Venus. And Venus is approaching maximum brightness. So very shortly, we'll be able to see Venus at its very brightest. Now, if you look at Venus through a telescope at the moment, you'll see that it's beginning to become more and more crescent-shaped. So we have the paradox that there's less Venus to see, but Venus is becoming brighter. And this is because, of course, Venus is coming closer to us. So even though it's in more of a crescent form, the Venus is much bigger in, in terms of its angular diameter as seen from Earth, so it's much brighter. Now is a very good time to be watching Venus with a telescope, as you'll see it becoming more and more crescent-shaped over the coming uh, weeks. Over the past weeks, we've seen Venus and Speaker come closer and closer. And finally, on September the 1st, we'll see Venus and Speaker at their closest. So the pair will look quite nice in the evening sky. And because uh, Venus is uh, staying up until well after the sky is fully dark, you'll be able to appreciate the pair of them. Just above Venus is Jupiter. Jupiter and Venus are heading for a rendezvous much later in late September, early October. So the two bright planets will be very close together 
much later on, but it's, it will be interesting to watch them over the coming weeks as the pair become closer and closer after the first Venus leaves speak behind and uh, st- sail steadily towards the giant planet. But that's something to look forward to. Jupiter is still looking uh, really good in telescopes. There's lots of good Jupiter moon events where you can watch the moon's transit the surface of, of uh, the face of uh, Jupiter and sometimes their shadows as well, as well as eclipses. So there's always something happening with Jupiter. However, Jupiter is now well past opposition and it's lowering in the sky. So at the moment, it's setting a bit after midnight, closer to 11 o'clock. And by mid-September, it'll be setting around about 10.30 or so. So the window of observation, you have a telescopic observation is narrowing. So the sky is getting quite dark around about nine o'clock or so, and that gives you only a couple of hours to really uh, get the telescope on Jupiter before it becomes too low to the horizon to be able to see decently in the telescope. Catch it while you can. Definitely catch it while you can. So, uh, uh, of course, at the moment, for the next week or so, uh, Jupiter is still um, setting around about uh, midnight, so for the next two weeks, they're pretty okay. But after that, it's getting harder and harder. So that's Jupiter. If you follow the line of sight of Venus and Jupiter, then you'll come to the bright red star Antares. And if you keep on following that to north, you'll see Saturn almost due north when the sky is fully dark. Saturn, of course, not very exciting vision-wise, although it's one of the brightest objects in the sky at the moment compared to Venus, Jupiter and Mars. It's much dimmer, but in a telescope, Saturn is always absolutely fascinating. The rings are still beautiful to see, and you should be getting uh, some nice definition seeing as the Saturn is, is quite high in the sky. Even though winter is about to leave us, the nights are still cold and still, and it's still very good observing conditions for Saturn. If you have a pair of binoculars, Saturn is very close to the Trippid and Lagoon nebulas, and so that will be a very good thing to observe You've got a relatively wide field telescopic piece. You might be able to fit them all in and possibly take a, 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 a wide field image of Saturn amongst those nebulas. However, Saturn will soon be leaving them behind. So Saturn has been moving closer to them and will become to a stop on the 6th and it'll start moving back towards our old friend M22. But at least for the coming fortnight, Saturn and those nebulas will be a very good binocular object and possibly a a decent telescopic object if you've got a very wide field telescopic eyepiece. Fantastic, Ian. And is there anything up there for people that are silly enough to get up early in the morning? No, you've still got Mars. Mars is setting sometime early in the morning, but at the moment, in in the really early, uh, early morning, it's pretty sad, planet-wise. Mars is sitting around 5.30 in the morning, but in terms of good observation, you really want to be wanting to be looking around about from about midnight on. So before twilight, you'll be able to have a good uh, a look at Mars, but it'll be very low to the horizon, so we won't be very good through, um, <laughs> through a telescope. Uh, Mercury has vanished back into the twilight, so you won't be able to see Mercury for a little while. And uh, later on, it will reappear in um, the uh, evening sky for a, a close approach to Venus a bit later on. But that, that, that's further down down in September at the moment. 
Mercury's not visible. If you are up past midnight and you happen to have a telescope out, the dust storm on Mars is beginning to settle, as I said. I think I've been saying that for the last two podcasts, that uh, the dust storm is beginning to settle, and it is. So you, people are seeing more and more detail. But as the time goes on, as Mars is approaching perihelion, which we'll do during our next podcast, the south polar cap is shrinking. So um, that really distinctive Martian polar cap will vanish or become much harder to see. And so we've been seeing some decent astronomical images of coming from amateurs with decent telescopes. But for those of us with more modest telescopes, it will still probably be uh, hard uh, to see anything uh, other than some dark streaks uh, around about the middle of Mars at the moment while that dust storm is still causing a bit of chaos. Well, we live in hope also that opportunity wakes up. Yes, we are. We're everyone's uh, waiting with worm on tongue to see if opportunity will come back to us. And once the dust settles, the uh, Martian winds may blow the dust off uh, opportunities solar panels and she will come back to life again as she did after the last opposition of Mars where she was also buried in dust for quite some time before uh, she was able to wake up and beat back to us. So it's a bit, been a bit longer this time but if there, we've still got examples from her, the previous dust storms that opportunity uh, can possibly come back. Indeed and Regardless of what happens, it's been an extraordinary mission that was only designed for a short amount of time, but it ended up lasting for years and years and years. It's outlasted its design um, so, so much further. When we, and when we look at Curiosity, Curiosity, of course, is still going strong, being powered by an atomic reactor. It uh, doesn't have to worry about dust storms. But eventually that atomic reactor is going to run out, so opportunity can could potentially outlast curiosity so long as the battery can be kept recharging, whereas curiosity must stop at some stage when the uh, radioactive source decays beyond the level of usefulness. That's amazing, Ian. Now, do you have a tangent for us, Ian? I do, and the tangent is related to the big rural storm we're having at the moment. You may or may not have heard of Steve. Have you heard of Steve? Oh, yes, I've heard of Steve. Steve's this amazing, unexplained auroral light. Steve has only been officially discovered since about uh, uh, 2017, although observers have seen Steve before. Steve is, in fact, surprisingly common. No one had really described it officially until around about 2017. And what, uh, and what they originally thought Steve was... Steve is a fanciful name. It's not actually named after a scientist or an astronomer or anything. It's uh, a, a named for a scene from the uh, kids' animated movie Over the Hedge <laughs> where uh, the characters name a hedge Steve so people won't be afraid of it. So, And now they've come up with acronyms so that Steve actually means something, but I, I won't dignify that with a, a, a response. <laughs> uh, so initially what they thought Steve was was a proton aurora. Now, the, um, uh, the particles streaming from the sun crash into the Earth's atmosphere and the, the particles crashing into the Earth's atmosphere that causes the glow of the aurora. And most of the colours we see are from electrons slamming into oxygen, nitrogen, and how high they crash into these atoms finds the colour. But 
in some ways. Uh, nitrogen and oxygen give off uh, different flows, uh, obviously, but um, part, of the, part of the flow comes from how the atoms transfer energy to each other. So in the very upper atmosphere, the excited state of the atoms lasts longer, so you have a different colour uh, you know, uh, reaction than uh, if the electrons get down further into the atmosphere. And so most of the action we're seeing is from electrons slamming into the atoms in the atmosphere, nitrogen and oxygen being the most common. Yep. I don't think anyone's actually got a carbon dioxide aurora uh, for real yet. It's theoretically possible, but I'm not aware of anyone confirming an actual uh, glow from carbon dioxide. Yep. But having said that, what they thought was that Steve was a proton aurora. Now, notice when I was talking about the auroras, I'm talking about electrons slamming into things. The solar wind is electrically neutral. You're having equal numbers of electrons and protons in the solar wind. And the protons also slam into uh, our the, uh, the atoms of our atmosphere. And so what they initially thought was that Steve, which is uh, seen as this sort of bright white arc, uh, quite often with purple in it. So people were thinking that maybe what Steve was was a proton aurora, and they were calling it um, uh, calling um, Steve a proton arc. And then they sort of looked at it more carefully and went, well, actually, the light emitted by atoms that have been excited by solar protons shouldn't be visible to the unaided eye. And so in 2008, there was a, a, a well-described uh, proton arc slash D at the same time as a uh, atmosphere-observing satellite was passing over, directly over the uh, where an aurora was occurring, where they were seeing this, um, this the big, a big Steve that was taking readings of the uh, electron flow and the proton flow as it went over the area. And what they found was that uh, whatever this phenomenon is, it's not due to uh, protons smashing into the atmosphere. It's something else. And what they think is it's a kind of sky glow. But why it's occurring only as these uh, bright beams uh, and why it's commonly associated with aurora is still a complete mystery. So it's amazing to think that not only did we only discover this relatively recently, despite, despite the fact people have been seeing it for years, uh, that it was only inverted commas discovered recently, but our initial explanation, which sounded really good, was completely wrong. <laughs> so now, now, now we've got a, a bigger, bigger mystery on our hands, but it's, it's fascinating. So just imagine lots of observers are going out and, and having a look, and now when they see the Steve, they can think uh, that now they're watching not something that's completely mysterious, and maybe they can, by coordinating their uh, observations with others, be part of a citizen science experiment to work out what the heck Steve is. Amazing. And those mysteries are what keep people going, Ian. It is indeed. It is indeed. It's a, it's a, 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 a mystery, a beauteous mystery, and a chance to do citizen science and, and add to the, the sum of knowledge. Fantastic. And well, we'll remind listeners now to follow Ian. It's at Ian F. Musgrave on Twitter. Or you can also just put Astroblogger into your favourite search engine and Ian's fabulous Astroblog will come up as number one. So thank you very much, Ian Astroblog Musgrave. It was a pleasure. It was a pleasure. And as always, look up.
And if you're uh, out and about night in southern Australia, have a look anyway. You might just catch an aurora or even a Steve. <laughs> Very good. Thank you, Ian. Okay. All the best. Cheers. See ya. Bye. And here's a couple of news items for the 31st of August. First up, a press release from the Gemini Observatory, August 27, 2018. Using the Gemini North Telescope in Hawaii, an international team of astronomers from Brazil, Italy, the Netherlands and the UK has discovered the most distant radio galaxy to date at 12.5 billion light-years, when the universe was just 7% of its current age. The team used spectroscopic data from the Gemini multi-object spectrograph to measure the redshift of Z equals 5.72 for the radio galaxy identified as TGSSJ 1530-1049. This is the largest redshift of any known radio galaxy. The redshift of a galaxy tells astronomers its distance because galaxies at greater distances move away from us at higher speeds and this motion causes the galaxy's light to shift further into the red. Because light has a finite speed and takes time to reach us, more distant galaxies are also seen at earlier times in the history of the universe. The measured redshift of TGSSJ 1530-1049 places it near the end of the epoch of reionisation, when the majority of the neutral hydrogen in the universe was ionised by high-energy photons from young stars and other sources of radiation. We're quite excited because in our next episode of Astrophys, we're talking to distinguished professor Stephen Tingay, and he's telling us about the Murchison Widefield Array, the precursor radio telescope for the SKA, and how they are planning to appear right inside the epoch of reionization. Now, we're going to finish today's episode of Astrophys with some recommended reading and listening. Some recommended reading is in the New York Times, the online version. And they've got a section called Overlooked in their obituaries. Since 1851, obituaries in the New York Times have been dominated by white men. With Overlooked, we're adding the stories of remarkable peoples whose deaths went unreported in the Times at the time. This story is about Ruby Payne Scott, a fabulous radio astronomer who helped lay the foundations for this new field of science called radio astronomy. We reported on her way back in June 2016 in episode 5, so you might want to go back and hear our version of it, or just go to the New York Times and you can read their version of this remarkable researcher. See you in two weeks. Radio Wave